Let me begin by sharing with you a little testimony of the greatest man that I ever met. Uh, one of the greatest men I ever met drove the ugliest car I'd ever seen. And when I was a kid, I told him, this is the ugliest car I have ever seen in my life. And he laughed at me. This same man uh, owned maybe three or four short shirts that he kept in his small closet of his very modest home. His mother died when he was a small boy. His dad ran off and left him, never to be seen again when he was a small boy. Uh, he never had more than an eighth grade education. and He ran away from his uncle's home when he was about 17 years old. Never to turn back. He was so poor that when the parents of the woman he'd asked to marry him heard about it, they warned their daughter of him and his proposal that this man had no pot to pee in or a window to throw it out of. And yet he did marry this woman. They built a life together, and they had a son who was my dad. My grandfather, Enoch Arden Knight, was a mountain of a man. He would, he would never eat the last piece of bread at the table. We would ask him, and he would never take it. If you saw something that he had that you liked, he would try to give it away to you immediately. When he would pray, he would close his eyes, and they'd fill up with tears as he told the Lord how thankful he was for his family. He served in the Navy during World War II. After World War II, he then served in the Corps of Engineers for some 50 years building dams. And during one of his assignments at this remote location, they pulled up and my grandmother, who loved Jesus, um, noticed that there was no church building uh, in the area. Well, my grandfather then took the time to build her, construct a meeting house for a church to meet in. It's just what he was like. He never tried to bring any attention to himself, but instead he sought to love and care for those around him, which tells us, doesn't it? There's something compelling about humility. Something compelling about humility. We see, when we see pictures of humility, when we hear stories of humility, it gives us hope that maybe, maybe the world is not so bad after all. And I think we think that because we're surrounded by so much pride and arrogance, aren't we? And so if humility is the antidote for hope, pride is the antidote to peril. There are few things more unattractive than seeing men and women draw attention to themselves for the sake of personal gain. Perhaps that's why, among many, many other reasons, why Jesus Christ quite literally and indisputably changed the world. It was he was and is the definition of humility. He challenged pride and self-interest on every turn. In fact, one might even say that it was his humility that led to his victory. Napoleon once said that he and Charlemagne and Alexander the Great built their empires upon force. And yet Jesus Christ built his kingdom upon love. And right now, millions would die for him. And so it is. As we turn to Luke chapter 14 this morning, we will find that the way to exaltation takes a surprising turn. The way to exaltation takes a surprising turn. It takes us down the path of humiliation. So it's humiliation when hoping in Christ that leads to exaltation. A compelling life is the humble life whose hope is found in the eternal reward of a meal with Christ in the kingdom. 
So as we turn to the passage this morning, we read of yet another time when Jesus is having a, deal, uh, having a meal with the Pharisees. This time he's having a meal with one of the leading Pharisees. And we see that he's in the midst of this dinner party. They are watching him carefully. And by that, I think Luke means to tell us that they're out to trap him. And there in the midst of them is this guy that has dropsy. Dropsy would be someone that has, uh, whose body is full of excess fluids. And so we've seen this before in terms of what happens. We've seen this before. We know how this goes. In fact, back in chapter 6, if you guys remember way back, we saw almost an exact same scenario where Jesus brings the Pharisee, Jesus in front of the Pharisees, he brings the men with dropsy up and he asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, according to scripture, there was nothing wrong with healing on the Sabbath. But remember, the Pharisees were defined by this additional set of rules that they built on top of the Bible. And their text, their additional scripture said that they can't do this. So Jesus' question, this moment, was drawing that out. If these guys, if these Pharisees say, yes, it is unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, therefore, they leave this man in his pain one more day. If they say no, then they will contradict their own teaching. So they're sort of in a trap of sorts themselves. And what we find is that Jesus does, in fact, heal the man. He sends him on his way. And then Jesus asks another question. He says, if something important to you, like a son or an ox, were to fall immediately in a hole, wouldn't you immediately get him out of that hole on a Sabbath? And once again, we might be reminded, uh, or we might imagine that more silence comes to Jesus' question. That then moves Jesus into this parable when he says, in essence, when you go to a wedding ceremony, don't jockey for the best seat because the groom might move you down and you'll look like a fool. Go, go to the worst seat, in, worst seat instead and then let the groom pull you up in the sight of all that you would be honored. And then verse 11, I think, is sort of the heart of this passage when Jesus says that everyone, circle that word, everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he gets that, uh, Jesus piles on the dinner host there in verses 12 to 14, and he says, he says in essence to these guys, listen, all you dudes here can do something for that guy. Right? Sure, you know, the ruler of the, the, ruler of the uh, Pharisees there that had the dinner party, you know, he, he bought some nice apple cider, you know, for them to drink. He bought some filet mignon, but Jesus is saying, listen, Eliezer over there, he can give you a nice meal next week. You know that. That's one of the reasons you invited them over. And Jesus says, why not invite people that can't do anything for you, that can't pay you back? And then we get that amazing verse in verse 14, and you'll be repaid, not here in the now, but at the resurrection of the just. Now try and imagine being there after all of these succession of moments. Try and imagine being there. Jesus has, in so many words, outed these dudes for their selfishness, for their hypocrisy. And so once again, we probably get this kind of awkward silence again. And that silence is broken by this guy in verse 15, when he says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Kind of breaking the silence, kind of, you know, feels awkward maybe. But I think this guy misses the point that Jesus has been trying to make. He misses the point. He assumes that he's going to be at that great marriage supper of the Lamb. He assumes he's got a place at the dinner table with God in heaven. 
And Jesus tells that next parable so as to communicate to this guy, you don't have a place. He tells the story, kind of goes on. A man invites a bunch of his buddies over for this huge party. We can imagine the Evite goes out, right? Big party, coming over, come on over. Uh, he sends it out next Saturday, huge meal at my place. And the servant then goes out. He sends the servant to say, all right, the meal's ready, come on in. And when he goes out, what does he face from these people except a bunch of excuses? I bought some land, so I'm going to go check that out. Sorry, please excuse me. Another one, to use 21st century language, another one says, I bought a John Deere tractor, an ox, you know, so I'm, I'm going to go check that out, so I'm not going to make it. Another one says, I just got married, so my wife and I, we're going to go binge watch some Netflix, hang out for a while, build our marriage, you know, so sorry, I'm not going to make it. And we look there in verse 21, it says the master of the house gets angry. Don't lose sight of that. Reflecting the heart of God, I think. And so he sends the servant out in the parable. He sends the servant out to the weak of the city. Some of those come in, and then he goes out even further. The servant says, listen, there's more room in here. So we'll go out even further to the highways and the hedges. And circle that word, compel people to come in. Compel them to come in. And then Jesus concludes in verse 24, I tell you, none, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet, referencing those original ones. In other words, these dudes sitting here at the dinner party, they got an invitation to sit with Christ in, the, in heaven and feast with him and taste of his banquet forever. And yet what Jesus means to communicate is that all of them were making excuses. They were, they were invited, but they're not coming. They have no place with Jesus. And so going back to the passage from last week, chapter 13, verse 29, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they're going to go in before you guys, as it were. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he's tipping his hat to the fact that this gospel is going to move on to the Gentiles, to the nations. And meanwhile, don't lose sight of this, meanwhile, these religious figures assume they're fine. They assume they're good. They've got a place at the table. And Jesus says, yeah, that's true. You were invited, but you won't come in. As is evidenced by the fact that you won't, going back to last week, you won't strive, you won't submit to enter into that kingdom. And so therefore, you won't be there. It's quite the conversation, isn't it? What a dinner party. All these things going on. And so we need to ask the question, what's the binding thread of Luke's rehearsal of this dinner party? What's the big idea that Luke is laying down for us? What's the one idea that ties all of this together? Well, the answer, I think, is pride or self-interest. That is to say, self-interest to the neglect of loving God and neighbor. Or we might say it another way, as you heard Chris prayed a moment ago, love for self more than love for God and neighbor. I realize that we could almost always trace sin back to pride in some way, shape, or form, but I do think Jesus seems to be emphasizing it here. So let's just walk through this briefly again and see this idea in every single part of the story. Take the healing incident, for instance. After asking if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, look at the argument Jesus makes. After the healing, he emphasizes their hypocrisy. They would be willing to work if it meant something that was valuable to them 
was in trouble. If their son, if their ox got trapped on a Sabbath, they wouldn't hesitate to help. So why not the son of someone that was dropped in the hole of dropsy? So Jesus exposes the fact that the Pharisees would work on a Sabbath if it benefited them. And then take the parable about the seating at the wedding feast. What's, the, what's Jesus concerned about there? Well, he's concerned with people exalting themselves and the way they chose their seating. They all jockey for the best seat so they can get the most honor. Right? We can be sure that the rays don't have the most honor since they're the ones right now getting into the sun. They're thinking about it. <laughs> and then take that parable of the ones that were called to invite the poor. Sorry, not the parable, but the, when Jesus directed it towards the ruler of the Pharisees. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame. What's Jesus' concern there? Well, his concern is that the Pharisee is happy to serve people who in return can serve himself. Thus, Jesus is called to invite people who can't do anything for him. And then that final parable of the great banquet. Why don't people come to the banquet? Why don't they taste Jesus' banquet? Well, because they have more interest in a new field, a new tractor, or a new wife, instead of sacrificing and suffering to get a meal at the table in the new heavens and new earth. And notice, by the way, in those excuses, did you notice? They're not all bad things. Wives and land, they're fine. They were even kind of cordial, weren't they? Please excuse me. But these guys were so willing to pursue those things and unwilling to pursue the things of God that they were unwilling to possibly sacrifice those things for the good of the glory of God or their neighbor, that therefore it wound up leaving them out. And all this becomes more clear as we take a look at the passage next week that we will consider, verses 25 to 33, and it's that jarring teaching of the need to hate father, mother, wife, children in order to be his disciple, to take up cross. And in that verse, verse 33, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's right after this. And so Jesus commands these things so as to make crystal clear for us that the reason the many will be outside the kingdom is not because people don't see some benefit in the kingdom. Not because people don't have some interest in the kingdom. They gladly, right, receive the invitation to the banquet. And because of that, that invitation, they assume they'll be there. But Jesus is showing us. The problem is, again, building off of the text from last week, the problem is they are unwilling to sacrifice, to suffer, to repent, to submit, unwilling to loosen their grip on personal glory, unwilling to give more than they were, are willing to suffer in order to get. These guys, these kinds of people, they fight, they clamor for the limelight, they, uh, they want the toys that are in the limelight, they neglect the poor, they neglect the crippled, the lame, those who struggle with dropsy, and instead they'd rather gain the whole world and lose their soul in the process. Thinking, by the way, that their soul's secure just like that man does. And so it's good for us, guys, to, to consider the billions of dollars, billions of dollars that are spent every single year to get you and me to believe that the good life is found in exalting ourselves. 
Billions of dollars are spent to get you and I believe the good life is, is found in our getting exaltation, our interests, our personal platforms, our possessions, our positions, our experiences. And listen, millions buy into it. Millions. Which is why it's so profitable. And if we were honest, all of us still buy into it a little bit, don't we? Maybe a lot. Thinking that if we could have more honor, more glory, if I could have more of these kinds of friends at my table, if I could get to know that person, then I would have the good life. And we spend untold amounts of money and energy and time to get that seat of honor. Only to find for those that actually get there, what they find is, is they just need more. It's never enough. More possessions, more money, more titles, more influence, more glory. Thinking your soul is going to go to heaven along the way because you know you're a nice guy, you're kind of religious. On and on the deadly cycle goes. And so I wonder, is that you, friend? Do you presume upon a place at the Lord's table only to make excuses when the time comes to get up and get going to see the Lord? Is your self-interest, your pride, your vain glory keeping you from seeing the place of desperation that you find yourself in? Do not, friend, presume upon the Lord's grace. The Lord has given you an invitation in the gospel. Will you be willing to renounce all and leave the excuses to sacrifice, to suffer, that you might be with Jesus at that marriage supper of the Lamb in the end? Are you willing to repent, to submit, to follow Him? Willing to renounce all, to come to Him, to know Him and enjoy Him forever? Or will your seat be taken by someone out further from the city? Out in the highways and the hedges? The Lord, friend, knocks. Will you answer? In 1985, a town in Florida sought to increase the interest to their city. And so they hired two men, and they welcomed a host of volunteers to build a giant sandcastle. Maggie, could you imagine a big, giant sandcastle? Wouldn't that be fun? $85,000 they spent to build this big sandcastle to draw interest to their city. And they spend all this on dump trucks and bulldozers and supplies. And they build the sandcastle only to see it wither away and be carried out into sea. Compare that with the story of Babette's feast where a poor French refugee shows up in a tiny Dutch village to serve as a housekeeper. And she goes 14 years serving these people, serving this family in particular. Till one day, Babette finds out that she's won the lottery. She's inherited thousands of dollars. And with this money, Babette goes to preparing a community, preparing a, me a, a lavish meal for her community. The guests, they come in, they enjoy the meal, and after the meal is over, Babette is asked when she will return to France. At which time, Babette informs them that she's still poor. And they ask her, well, where did all the money go? And she says, I spent it all on this meal. And one of the guests responded with tears in her eyes, Oh, Babette, how you will enchant the angels in heaven. 
sandcastles, friends, on earth, they wither. Castles built in heaven out of love for God and love for neighbor, willing to sacrifice, willing to submit, willing to strive, they never wither. They never fade. They never spoil. So, beloved, build castles in heaven. The neglect and the suffering of yourself and the good of others and the glory of God. Build castles up in heaven, not on earth, where rust and moth destroy, where waves come in and take back out into the sea. Come to see that the way, uh, the way down is the way up. To be low is to be high. To be weak is to be strong. To have nothing is to possess all. To give is to receive. And the reason why, friends, that is true is because that quite literally is the way of life. Right? Jesus said, I am the life, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the way of Christ that led to life was found in his leaving the praises of the angels to come down and live amongst man, to be born of a virgin, to be raised by a carpenter in a tiny backwater town named Nazareth, to grow up and leave 12 poorly educated unheralded disciples who would abandon him in his darkest hour. The way of Christ was to be handed over by one of those disciples where he was then fraudulently humiliated. Jesus was then beaten. He was then whipped. He was then shamed for simply claiming who he was. He had a crown of thorns shoved upon his head. They gave him a robe and then mocked him and laughed at him till eventually they nailed his hands and his feet into a wooden cross where he would die as a substitute for sinners who would repent and believe on him, who would submit to him and follow him. Jesus said that whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And this, friends, is why Jesus was truly great. Truly great. Jesus him humbled himself and therefore on the third day, he was exalted. He humbled himself so he was the answer to his own statement there in verse 11. Having made atonement for sin, having conquered sin in the resurrection, he then is exalted as he is sit, seated down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And now he, the master, sends his servants out that believe on him. He sends us out. He sends us out who believe on him, who've been changed by him, who submit to him, who strive to enter in. He sends us out to the highways and to the hedges to compel people, not just tell them, compel them about the beauty of this Lord and Savior to come in. And we are compelled then to go into the cities, into the towns, into the outer reaches of the earth. Note that word, underline this, that his house may be full. Isn't that beautiful? He wants it full. How could we not do this when we see Jesus over there washing the feet of his disciples hours before they abandoned him? How could we not be compelled by this love when we hear his groans on the bloody cross paying the price of our redemption? Paul says that the love of Christ compels us to go. And yes, friends, there will be far too many that will presume upon the master's invitation. There will be too many that have invited, have been invited and say, blessed are those that eat in the kingdom of God. And yet they will never be willing to come in because they're never willing to stoop, never willing to humble themselves that others may know the Lord 
and live in his grace. Never willing to suffer, never willing to strive, never willing to serve those in need. Unwilling they are to set aside their own glory in order to glorify Christ and enter into the glory of his name and his kingdom. But Restoration Church, let that not be us. Let it not be us. May we never exalt ourselves, but instead humble ourselves in order that we would be exalted, but all the more because we want him to be exalted at the resurrection of the just. May we humble ourselves in order to exalt Christ and be with him at the table. So that final call then for us is is to settle in here, beloved. Settle in here in this corner of the earth. Settle in. Be empowered by a simple, humble life that serves God and neighbor. Don't feel the need to be great in the eyes of men. Serve instead your fellow men in the name of Christ. Serve them with that subversive, quiet, yet powerful love of Christ and change the world. Listen, change the world over your dinner table, over walks in your neighborhood. Change the world that way. And listen, along the way, Laugh at yourself a lot. Don't take yourself so seriously. Find that freedom. And along the way, listen, take Jesus seriously. Take others seriously. And all along the way, don't presume upon the kingdom. Don't presume upon your invitation. Strive to enter in. Strive to invite others in. Plead for grace. Plead for mercy along the way to keep going. And soon enough, the resurrection will be here. Soon enough, we'll be here. Body and soul. No more coronavirus. No more murders. No more heat outside because we can't go inside. No more economic strife. No more racial tensions. But instead, a table full of the finest foods and the loudest laughter and the best singing you ever heard at the best dinner party you've ever attended because it will all be for our master the one that found us way off on the highways and the hedges, the one that found us in the gutters, drunk on our own pursuit of self-glory, the one that woke us up and invited us in by his grace and for his glory. It will be worth it. And so the reality is that it will be worth it because Christ is worth it. He is the fountain of love and the essence of glory. So may we humble ourselves, serve others in the name of Christ, look forward to our reward as we go to give us energy to keep going and do so for the glory of God and the good of our fellow neighbor. This, friends, is the quiet and the oh-so-compelling life that leads to exaltation. I've often said that the way in which I hope to spend my life, a couple ways in which I know my life was worth it, If I love my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, try to love my wife as best I can, love those two boys as best I can, and maybe have a significant impact on two or three people. What would happen if all of us did that to the world? Humble yourselves that you might be exalted at the day of resurrection. Let's pray to him. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You were the fulfillment of your own words. You were willing to humble yourself that you would be exalted on the third day. And so, God, may we follow your pathway, not only as an example, but as the way in which we're empowered to do so 
And not even as an example, not even as a way to be empowered, but thirdly, that we would exalt you. And God, help us to keep in view that future day when we will be resurrected with the rest of the just, when we will say that it is all worth it. We love you, God, and thank you that, Jesus, you are a Savior like this. We praise you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen.